Welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast, where we explore the future of technology and its impact on society. In this episode, we're joined by Bara Badwan, an MIT grad and Yale PhD, now working in tech, who's deeply familiar with and very concerned about artificial intelligence to discuss the pressing issue of AI replacing our jobs. As AI continues to advance at a rapid pace, there are concerns that many jobs may become automated, leaving workers out of a job. We'll, exp we'll be exploring the following questions. What jobs are most at risk of being replaced by AI? Can AI be used to create new jobs? And if so, what types of jobs? And how can we ensure that the benefits of AI are distributed fairly across society? We'll also be delving into the potential economic and social consequences of widespread AI job displacement and discussing what role the government and companies should play in mitigating this impact. We'll explore the possibility of implementing a universal basic income and the philosophical questions around work. Should the human species continue to grow until it becomes a type two, three, or four civilization on the Kardashev scale? What are the societal implications of AI replacing most of our jobs? Join us as we navigate the complex issues surrounding AI and job displacement and explore how we can ensure a smooth and fair transition to an AI-dominated workforce for all involved. Since we're just starting out and could really use your support, if you like this episode, please whisper, touch me, and push that like button um, or smash it. Share this episode comment, sign up for our newsletter, retweet our episodes to at Balajis, that's B-A-L-A-J-I-S on Twitter so we can get his attention and get him on the podcast. I promise we'll make it all worth it for you. Right. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Today we are joined by Bara Badwan, or Bara, which is uh, one of the ways that we've joked about pronouncing his name. He's also a stand-up comic, um, graduated MIT. And Bara, why don't you give like a quick intro to yourself and then we'll dive into today's topic, which will be how AI is replacing our jobs. Sure. Um, so yeah, I did undergrad at MIT. And had a PhD at Yale in computational neuroscience. So I was always kind of obsessed with AI and the fun stuff that's coming down the pipe there. So I thought it'd be a good way to set up for life. And, you know, there's been kind of freaking out about it recently, seeing all the stuff with ChatGPT kind of things coming to fruition. Got me thinking about it. And so it might be a good topic for us to chat about. So what is it that's most concerning to you about this? Well, basically, like we have, like, I mean, firstly, like, I don't know, like when it first came up, they were like, oh, this is going to make the you know, English essays redundant or like, how are like teachers going to teach? Uh, like, how are they going to do all this in schools? It's like, no, wait, you're like missing the forest for the trees. Like, what the hell are we going to, what skills are even going to be useful to be taught to kids at this point? Right. Because like we've spent our lives preparing like, like, learning a bunch of skills on the assumption that these are going to get you the high income white collar jobs and now suddenly something is coming out that's going to make most of that work pretty redundant so you just need like one or two people rather than let's say 10. Uh, so now it's just kind of an open question of like what do you even teach kids what do you 
do with everybody right now in these kind of knowledge economy stuff, like on like the knowledge economy sector. That's it's really a kind of like a big shift that's like yeah that we haven't really figured out well how to deal with yet or like even noticed that it's happened. But so I don't know. There was also a paper just released by OpenAI, right? And they did some research yeah. on how how many jobs are at risk, et cetera. You want to share a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, they go into all the different kinds of uh, jobs that are kind of most exposed and they have these kinds of different exposure levels. And uh, I think maybe, like, yeah, the big takeaway from it was that it's, you know, like the more most of the jobs that are exposed are uh like yeah what white collar knowledge economy uh jobs more than anything else um yeah i'm happy to kind of let's share it we can even get a, the chat gpt to really explain it for us because why not, <laughs> why not right let's make it meta podcast, yeah go for it podcast script writing is one of the jobs that's going to be on the way out i guess yeah let me see do we should i share the screen or no why not yeah all right let's do it How do you feel about this, Adrian? Um, I have been thinking about this for a really long time as well. I think that this is a major concern that we really need to address, not only because it's so clear that um, this is going to replace so many jobs that we kind of expected, but also because on the other side of the problem, the education system has been failing for the past you know, 150 years. So... <laughs> Um, it's not even that, you know, these are at risk just from the side of AI taking over, but because from our education systems perspective, which is the potential solution to this problem, it has been so uh, slow to adapt uh, because it's extremely complex and bureaucratic um, and centralized in a lot of ways. It's going to be very, very difficult or it's going to take a long time to uh, prepare us in a way to deal with this problem. But we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more because I think um, there are multiple solutions to the problem and, and that's just one of them that could be like the long-term. We're fixing education, but like for me, like I don't even know what the education could be fixed to, right? Like something's kind of, yeah, like a bit more of a fundamental problem. I don't even know what you mean when like you say like, oh, Education has been failing for the past X amount of years. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, there's a bunch of it that's purely like rote or teaching to the test and stuff like that. Yeah. Useful. But like, that's like the idea of, you know, like critical thinking and kind of how do you figure things out? That's been taught for the most part. And like, I guess in the US, it's kind of a access thing, right? Like the best schools do tend to have good education problem here is just is just like it doesn't even matter what class or background you have right like we're just kind of fundamentally shifting what it means to like you know prepare yourself to do useful work in society it's not even clear what useful work would mean right so i don't know it's kind of weird like I, it's not very easy for me to see what possible solutions exist here other than well yeah so i mean well we're, we're gonna have to explore all of that but i think um well uh, we actually just recorded an episode uh, that will be coming out very soon um, with a man named Alexandros Marcassini. And we tackled kind of all of the 
what we think are like the biggest problems in society today and how we would tackle them, you know, as briefly as possible. But one of them was the failing education system and, you know, teaching fundamental skills. And, you know, to contextualize that conversation into this one, I would say having the skills that will be uh, least likely to get replaced will have to be part of the education system now, right? It's it's going to be necessary, not only um, so that, you know, like when you say useful jobs, the word that comes to mind for me is um, valuable, right? Like, what are people going to be willing to pay another human for when there's the alternative of an AI that, you know, doesn't get sick, can come into work all the time, can do the job better every single time. Um, it's going to come down to what do we consider valuable? So, um, you know, there are multiple skills that, you know, off the top of my head were, uh, the critical ones that we'll have to teach in the education system being literacy, numeracy, uh, critical thinking, like you mentioned, um, how to have hard conversations, right? Civics. Um, so how it comes down to how do we live uh, all together in a as peaceful way as possible, given all of these facts and how it's going to become much more difficult to prove value for low um, complexity jobs, right? Um, and it's not just like chat GPT, which, you know, I, I want to dive into this paper a bit, uh, but it's also like, uh, Tesla with the optimist bot, right. Which is going to be automating all the physical tasks, um, that are oh, boring or dangerous. Well, that's the thing Like I think even like right now we're in a state where like the physical tasks are much harder to automate than all these things like numeracy and literacy are kind of. That's kind of it's bread and butter. That's the check. base level, yeah. Because we have to we have to keep in mind, right? Like, there's no, still saying, an insane percentage of the world that doesn't have those skills. Yeah, but like right now, it seems like it's even more useful to just learn, you know, a physical skill like hand carving wood, rather than like reading, because like right at this point, like the machines seem to be having a harder time operating in the physical world than you know reading books and analyzing and giving us analysis. So it could be even a question of like, you know, a kind of a swing back to like, you know, more artisanal type jobs. Kind of like they yeah, were like creative. Berkeley uh, a research lab that's um, like trying to teach a robot to fold laundry. And that's one of the very, very hard tasks because, you know, like, how do you tell the robot that there is one object and then you pick it up and then it is and like, that's the whole process that they haven't really figured out yet. But I mean, even that, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's why what worries me. That's like the standard answers seem to kind of go out the window at this point. Because, you know, like, because like the things that you used to be of high value, they just kind of been very, very rapidly um, thrown out, I guess. And do you want to re read up the abstract? Yeah, yeah, go for it. All right. We investigate the potential implications of generative pre-trained transformer GPT models and related technologies on the U.S. labor market. Using a new rubric, we assess occupations based on their correspondence with GPT capabilities, incorporating both human expertise and classifications from GPT-4. Our findings indicate that approximately 80% of the U.S. workforce could have at least 10% of their work tasks affected by the introduction of GPTs. 
for around 19% of workers may see at least 50% of their tasks impacted. The influence spans all wage levels with higher income jobs potentially facing greater exposure. Not to believe the impact is not limited to industries with higher recent productivity growth. Exhibit uh, GPTs exhibit characteristics of general purpose technologies. That's funny that they are using the same acronym for two different concepts. Suggesting that these models could have notable economic and social policy implications. So I guess the, the top line number is like 80% will have 10% of their work affected, and then you have 20% that will have 50% of their work impacted. And here you can see like this uh, is how GPT-4, so the GPT-4 just came out, right? And then there, mm -hmm. we just have the GPT-3 and they're showing how well it did in different exams. So you can see like AP Calculus, for example, GPT-3 wasn't very good at it, and now suddenly it's- Yeah, four is uh, killing it, yeah. Yeah, we're doing all right on it. And then like environmental science, it's really good at. Uh, it's ER, EBRW, what is that? It's the SAT, but some sort of version of the SAT. No, no, no. But yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, this is all to contextualize, again, this is just for GPTs, right? Like this isn't even all automation yeah. that we risk uh, taking over much more quickly than I think we're prepared. And when I say we, I mean, our political structure ready to act on quickly enough, right? It's something that, um, and actually, I don't know, Bara, if we want to, if, if there's anything else in this article before you stop sharing and that you want to dive into. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we've got the main gist of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So like, you know, when I was looking at uh, the rise of Andrew Yang, um as a potential presidential candidate and talking about um um ubi uh that was another potential solution that i saw that would help take us over through this transition period because i don't think that we're gonna get um long-term sustainable solutions in place on a macro scale when it comes to the education and political systems being completely um <laughs> accelerated like they've never been accelerated before um so we're going to need a quick fix that helps the transition period of you know hundreds of thousands if not more of jobs being replaced much more quickly than uh than those systems can keep up with right i mean i don't know like who we can argue it's maybe like a very base reading of i'm probably gonna butcher everything here but like you could argue that there is a kind of a Marxist reading of this entire thing where Marx kind of saw this coming a couple hundred years ago when the idea there was that, you know, like, it's always the the, the greatest, like, barrier to, like, making profit. Like, you can always make more profit using a machine versus a human, basically. So, like, machine costs are fixed, labor costs are not, and then, like, you can replace laborers and machines, you can always make a higher profit. So, there is this kind of um, tendency towards automation in capitalist systems will always be true. And, but like, but like you know, if like, but capitalism kind of depends on people having enough money. So, like, if you want to replace a laborer with a machine so that you can produce your product for less cost, if that happens on mass, and then you really don't have anybody to sell that product to. Like that kind of breaks the system, right? Like if everybody is unemployed and they can't afford this product, then even if you're making it cheaper, you're not making much of a profit because there's no actual consumer base. 
to buy these products. Interesting. So, yeah. So we, there's, yeah. there's the balancing of supply and demand uh, also being dramatically affected because yeah, one man's income is another man's spending, right? Or so yeah. on and so forth. So if we have this mass automation events where everybody is kind of unemployed because like nobody really has any real skills or values that will add anything, then how are they even going to consume the things that are being produced so cheaply with the machines? So the entire kind of paradigm feels like it's going to break. And at that point, you might as well just have the you know workers control the means of production or something like that. If the means of production becomes super easy, where everybody can just create. But yeah, I don't know. Like maybe we should just go back to farming, produce food, get the, the basics down. That seems like that that gives me a little more. You know, buy land, start farming. So. <laughs> Okay, so um, all right. Well, let's let let's dive into that for a second because I actually think um, you know we 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 should explore the potential implications of there not being enough consumers to purchase this cheaper result of labor. But I I, I don't think that that would it. There's a percentage of the population that will be more impacted than the other right the people who are controlling these machines will have an enormous amount of wealth and they will still be able to use that wealth to purchase whatever they want um, and serve other wealthy people so it's really just going to create this polarized or even more polarized wealth gap um, where now not only can you uh, and actually when you think about how cheap it will be to mass produce things more so than it ever was, they could still become wealthy by selling a product for extremely cheap to the masses that would be extremely poor in these uh, scenarios. Um, and still, because they're selling to so many people, it ends up being extremely successful for them, right? Let's say they're producing um, a medical device that helps you, you know, keep track of your health, something that everybody would need. Um, and they've gotten the means of production to be so efficient that it's extremely cheap to produce and sell. And even if they have like razor thin margins, like a cent, you know, <laughs> per sale, uh, but you're selling to billions of people, right? That's still substantial enough. Um, so if the billions of people, if the core assumption is that people just have no any more skills that are useful for getting any sort of income, then they like one cent might be too much for them, right? Because like if the core assumption is that yeah, like we have this AI that's going to effectively do anything a human can do, therefore there is really no reason a human should ever labor because he's not adding or anything that the machine can do for cheaper and faster then yeah, like there shouldn't be any income for them at all. And even so it's like, in terms of labor, uh, in terms of, you know, capital holders, yeah, like you can own capital in its various forms and you can use it to generate some new product. You can use it to generate some new entity, but then you can't really sell it if there's no, like, yeah, right? Like there's nobody who's, like you can sell it to, Swap it with other capital owners, but yeah, I don't know. Like, it doesn't make much sense. I just, I don't see how we untie that. Kind of... Well, it depends if it's if oh. it's absolutes, oh. right? So, like, if there are 
if there are if there's truly a world in the near future in which the masses of people can literally not make any income like zero uh, because they have absolutely zero value producing skills that are better or different enough than what AI can do, um, then yeah, that's a real scenario. But even in that scenario, what I would hope would happen and what we should really be pushing to happen um, is to have a world of abundance that is governed in such a way that everybody can have their needs met. Um, and obviously it's much more difficult to do that in practice, but I'm saying the guiding light there is if we're believing in some form of liberalism uh, as the guiding light where you know everybody should live the lives that they want to live as long as they don't do others harm, um, then we would need to have a, a, a guiding light that says um, we have so much abundance in resources and value and capital um, that everybody could have what they need, right. but, um, and this is where it comes down to, uh, I think a question of human nature and what's going to be very difficult. Like the crux of this question is how do you get some of the people in power who are in power because what makes them, uh, what gives them drive is this potential psychological need for for power or validation or whatever it is um, to say, you know what, I have enough and stop, right? <laughs> or to say, um, I'm satisfied and I'm actually going to use this power and this wealth to help all these other people that either, you know, weren't dealt the same cards that I was or can't inherently produce as much value as I do. Um, and to realize that, you know, that's just going to be the reality uh, that we're going to face. And so given that we're going to need to change our morals and our ethical capitalism, um, because there, otherwise there's just going to be, yeah, a, a, a mass of people that cannot care for themselves. Um, and what happens in those situations is revolutions, right? So, um, there is no bright future where everybody wins unless the people who win extremely right or significantly more than everybody else are willing to uh to share yeah or to be satisfied yeah i mean no i wouldn't count on the fundamental shift in human nature here i think it's gonna have to just kind of break apart um due to and they get yeah, reset through through revolution yeah potentially right. But like I'm kind of like I think yeah I mean long term I think these are kind of interesting things of like just given an axiomatic world of like all right let's say that machines can do everything short term in reality though what I think might happen now is that a lot of like we have this kind of mental model of this of society right now where it's like you know there is some really extreme rich people and there is you know the very the poor who really need assistance the working class people and then there is this kind of Subsegment of you know working professionals who are doing relatively well in the system and kind of are surviving like like in the current model are very very well paid relative to society but perhaps they're still kind of laborers right in some sense like lawyers doctors um, 
software engineers, product managers, et cetera. Yeah. And these yeah. who are making between, you know, let's say 100K and 5 million, let's say, within that range. There's a good segment of people who are in that world. And I see that these latest automation tools could really hit those, hit that class of people. And it either pushes them down to the working, to the working class uh, bucket, or you know, I guess like yeah, like what could be the the positive outcome here would be like oh yeah, they kind of end up using these tools to make their life easier and then keep going. But I do think that that could be one of the first things to kind of break the current status quo. So because these kind of you know, deep bourgeoisie will no longer kind of exist. It will kind of put down a pressure down the system where it's like, you can't really, oh, I go to college, you get a good job, learn to code. Because like, like you do, when we were talking about this like 10 years ago, I was like, well, you know, code, you know, you should learn how to code and you'll be the one making the machine. ChatGPT can code, it can code for you. I've been using it to code for my job. So, okay, full disclosure, what I do uh, during my day job, other than stand-up comedy, is, um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm part of the system, right? Like, uh, I'm doing machine learning and artificial intelligence for drug discovery, so to predict if drugs are going to be approved. So for that job, there's a lot of coding involved. I'm creating AIs to basically replace drug researchers, right? And, you know, that job could be replaced by ChatGPT because she, uh, it can really generate code that I can use. I've been using it the past week. Being like, all right, I have this problem with work. Let's do this. Okay, this is the code. Try to run it. It's buggy. Give me something else. So over time, like in a week, I've been doing way more work than I would have done otherwise. I haven't told my boss how easy things have been so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other thing, right? Like this is going to become common knowledge. But so I want to dive into to that because I think, you know, the coding um, example uh as a good segue into you know what are the types of jobs that are most at risk of being replaced by ai let's just list them out because i think it's important for people to understand like you know we went through that paper very briefly but it's not just the super easy manual tasks it's also very high paying like currently high paying jobs yeah i think the super easy super simple manual tasks are some of the hardest to I don't think they have a list of the kind of jobs. I saw it online, but I'm not seeing it in the paper itself. And yeah, you know why? Like, yeah. I was gonna say like I would most think it's something like, um, yeah, like paralegals who have to like read through a bunch of things and offer summaries, equity researchers, like things like that, where it's like. If your job is, you know, reading a bunch and then and like summarizing it for somebody else, that I think is straight up, straight out. The copywriters who are like, you know, who just need to like write a lot of, you know, company jargon or company uh, like copy, some stuff like that could really take a hit. I think like, yeah, like human-based creative things, like, you know, like managing X and Y and Figuring this out might be a little harder, but right, I think. Me... Th yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna share the screen again. Is that cool? Yeah, go for it. All right, so this is some simple. 
actually rotate this. So let me see if I can. Let me just download this and see if I can open it. So yeah, can you read the 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 top, the rightmost are the ones that are most affected, and leftmost are the least affected. Uh, it's hard to read. Yeah, let me just save this. Um, yeah, but you were going to say something? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think that the two rules of thumb that we should be using as guiding lights here is number one, what is most unique, right? Because with machine learning, essentially, if other people have done something similar, um, it's very likely, or it's common, it's very likely that there are going to be good answers to that problem, right? So if it's a common problem, there's going to be unanimous or several unanimous or better um, overall solutions that multiple people agree on. So more uniqueness, right? That's one rule of thumb. The other is um, what are the unique human traits um, that are very difficult to get the same impact from uh, something not real. Uh, and what I mean by that is, so for example, the Turing test is a test to determine if AI can fool a human into thinking that it's human, right? Um, and so we can imagine a world in which AI will be a better therapist uh, to people than a human therapist. If you know it's it's happening, uh, it happens to do all the right things really well, um, and so what I think it comes down to there is our neurochemistry, and what triggers the right responses in our brains to make us feel the most understood or make us feel well, the most. You're right. Um, I think this is. Let's talk about the Turing test for a little bit before we get into this. Because actually, the test is very genius, I think, personally. It's this idea that, like, if you can't tell, the, the idea is basically, like, yeah, if a machine can fool people into not truth, like, if if a bunch of judges aren't able to tell if they're speaking to a machine or a human, then it has passed the Turing test. And the reason why that's very fundamentally important is that there's a lot of arguments that you can make about what is intelligence? Does something have consciousness? Does something, it does, does some, the other minds exist, right? Like there's like pure philosophy. Um, and then there's all these questions about machines, can machines think? And what Turing did was like say, all these questions are really irrelevant. What really is relevant is if this machine can fool you into thinking that it's as good as any other human into displaying what you consider to be thinking, that you won't be able to tell if it's a human or not based on just interacting with it through text. So. And then that's a very fundamental thing, right? Because like on some level, I can't really say that you exist, Adrian, right? Like I don't really know that you experience the world as I do. Right. So as long as the machine tells you that it's conscious, it tells you that it feels pain, it tells you it has intelligence, then you can't really say it's not true. You'd be like, oh, well, you know, we know how you were programmed, you were programmed on this data set, uh, therefore it's not true. Right, uh, you were programmed to say that and therefore it's yeah. not true, right? But on some level, it's like you might as well be talking to a human and making that same argument. It's just out of mm -hmm. yep. politeness, you're like, all right, we just assume that everybody has some consciousness 
how we agree that we have the same one. So I think that's a fundamental insight from the Turing test setup is that you don't really, once machines start arguing that they are conscious and can fool people enough that they can't really tell the difference between humans and machines who they're talking to, then at that point, that's going to open a whole cascade of things, right? Then you start talking about civil rights because ultimately you have conscious beings. Can you inflict pain on them? Do they have any sort of vested rights themselves in a society? Uh, that's going to be very, very interesting as well, right? Like, that's going to be like, you never see the next civil rights fight coming, right? Like, people who were fighting to abolish slavery had no idea that there would be like 50 years from then being like complete equality. People who were fighting for equality in the 60s had no, like, were probably very anti-LGBT on some level. Like, there was, they were fighting for one level of things, and then it kind of always expands. And I think the next one is going to be some sort of machine-based civil rights, because, I mean, yeah, ultimately you're going to have a conscious being or something that's claiming is conscious. And I'm seeing a lot now with this argument about ChatGPT, where it's like, well, actually, it's just, you know, I'm just predicting the next word in a sentence. It's not really doing what you're doing. Which, you know, like, I don't know, like, it's it's strange. That's how it's strange, right? It's ultimately, it's just a bunch of, uh, new, it's a neural net. which does have a bunch of nodes that have different weights. Kind of like how your brain does, right? And it's huge enough that it kind of generates some very striking responses. I just, I feel like it's, there's a lot of wishy-washy stuff where it's like, we feel like we have a certain consciousness and we're kind of magic. And therefore, because this thing isn't us exactly, therefore, it's not going to be conscious. It's not going to be true intelligence, et cetera, and so forth. I mean, yeah, I mean, ChatGPT maybe it's not there yet, but I think it's quite clear that it's going to be happening soon. And that argument is going to be coming up a lot where there's going to be a bunch of people who will just refuse to acknowledge that machines have intelligence on some level but that's beyond you know just a utility i think i completely mean... agree yeah you don't even need to imagine it right we are already seeing this with animal protection uh organizations like PETA, right like if they're fighting so ferociously for the rights of animals that a lot of people already consider are not conscious quote-unquote conscious or intelligent um why would that stop for something else that, again, makes us feel these things for them, right? And that's why I think it's it's not so much about the logic. Um, it's going to be a lot more about the emotions that people feel. I think it's absolutely realistic that people will fall in love with their AIs, uh, that they will want to marry their AIs. Um, you just add, you know, all of the... Um, right uh, technologies to trigger the right reactions that you want or the optimal reactions that you want. Um, and you can see that this could replace you know, pretty much everything. When you extrapolate it down more and more, right? You shed all the layers. We're just bags of sensory um, things, right? So we can feel, smell, right? We've got these emotions, all that. And so you separate all of that, um, you know, if people want to be happy, uh, if people want to feel fulfilled, if people want meaning, um, there are ways to produce those feelings in your brain from a neurochemical perspective. Um, now, I think like there will also be a wave of people that differentiate between, but is it real, right? And by is it real, 
it's, you know, am I affecting another human life? Right. And so that's where I think there's going to be that divide because there will be a camp of people who consider all intelligent life, quote unquote, intelligent life as life or conscious uh, and a camp of people that will see it as um, a machine or not conscious or intelligent and therefore, you know, not needing any human equivalent human rights or human treatment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a rabbit hole that we could go down, but I want to, I want to also um, focus in on these jobs that you found. Um, and I want to focus also on like, you know, how this is going to be immediately re relevant um, in the next, you know, five, 10 years. Uh, yeah. Five years at this point, 10 years, 10 years is too hard to even see at this point. Right. Exactly. Cause it's all, it's all exponential progress as yeah. well. All right. So industry average LLM exposure. So large language models. So this is showing you, you know, like the average would be like 60, 70% of the work could be replaced. So data processing, hosting, and related services, other information services, publishing industry, insurance carriers, and related activities, credit intermediation, uh, security commodity contracts, and other financial investments, professional scientific and technical services, investors of non-financial intelligible assets, Broadcasting, monetary authorities, central bank, all right, the Fed is going to come for you, it's going to come for the Fed. <laughs> I don't know how that would even work. but uh... So I actually think um, this brings up uh, another really interesting topic. Um, and guys, you know, we, we could put a link to this in the show notes for everybody uh, if you want to see all the, the jobs listed. Uh, but yeah, Bar, you can go ahead and stop sharing. So the the really interesting thing that I want to explore there is what would happen if we had AI running our governments? Um, and just to explore the possibility of having a government in which uh, the human portion of it is purely execution, whereas the management of it is decentralized. So for example, um, the more micro the government, the easier it is to, to manage, right? So let's say you're just governing your household or you're governing your building or you're governing your neighborhood, right? The less actors there are, the easier it is to get everybody's input and, and potentially enact things to, to make changes, right? So we can um, scale that out if everybody's doing that for their own household, their own building, their own neighborhood, whatever it is. Um, and just like Ethereum uh, runs its uh, network, any person could make a proposal. That proposal could be upvoted or downvoted by the community. If that proposal reaches a certain threshold, say it's like 80% or 51%, whatever, doesn't really matter, like either just a majority or a substantial enough majority, um, that that's when it then gets enacted. Um, all of that part of the process could be completely controlled by AI. Um, the harder part is, okay, well, now that we've decided that this is what we want to do as a majority or a substantial majority, who's going to execute it, right? 
Um, and in part, you know, a lot of that could actually be automated, right? If it's physical tasks, like, okay, we all vote that um, we don't want garbage men uh, to do garbage disposal anymore. We want robots to do it, for example, right? I'm just giving this as an example to illustrate the point. Um, that could be voted on and acted on entirely through AI and robots. Like it doesn't need any human intervention. Uh, right. Whereas, and yeah, go ahead. In this example, like, yeah, like it sounds like it's suggesting the policies and voting is what the humans are doing, right? Like, you could argue, like, putting fluoride in the water by 10%. We can, so once somebody suggests it, human can suggest it, humans will vote on it, machine can implement it. Absolutely fine. I think the question becomes when machines start suggesting policies. Mm -hmm. Right now, I can go into ChatGPT and ask it, "What's the best way to structure tax systems? Should the like how, should it be a progressive thing where everybody pays a hundred bucks no matter how much you make, or should it be a percent of your income, or should it be a higher percent of your income the higher more the more money you make? See, like it can suggest some options. It's going to tell me, oh, there's a big debate, blah blah blah. So what I could even see it happening is that like now there's I've seen a lot of people online complain that you know. Chat GPT is too woke, right? Like it's it doesn't say any racist stuff. It's been kind of there's a lot of protections against it. So I can see like you could. I mean, that's the thing with the AI, all these models is that none of it is patentable, really. It's all just trade secrets. Like other people can do the same, like set up the same models, right? And you can train it on a lot of you know right wing speech. Yeah, you can train it. You can create your little Nazi GPT. You can train it on a bunch of left-wing speech. You can take it and just train it only on the works of Karl Marx. And then you'll have a little Karl Marxist GPT. So I can see in terms of AI and politics, a situation where down the line, you have multiple extremely smart AIs that have very different views on the world and solutions for how society should be structured. And you end up with a situation you're voting for, like, for one AI or the other, right? To like be in charge. So, I mean, that's kind of yeah, crazy, crazy. That's, so that's why I'm thinking, and, and look, like that's not a bad thing. Um, I think that it's just, we need more personalized government at that point, right? Because the problem is not that um, there are diverse ideas that are on completely opposing sides of a spectrum. The problem is that you are trying, right? And not you, but like society in general is trying to force people who are on different sides of a spectrum to get along in certain ways, or that some people on one end of the spectrum are forcing other people on the other end of the spectrum to live in certain ways. So if it's if it's instead, you know, you can live the way that you want to live as long as it doesn't harm others. And that's where the, the contentions happen, right? Um, that's what we need to focus on. But otherwise, you know, like having multiple AIs with multiple different viewpoints, uh, arguing better than humans at coming to the best solution or the best um, middle ground or the best individual solution I think is just an added benefit more than a than a bug, right? It's like, um, yeah. it's just taking advantage of knowing all of that information and being able to uh, to come to better conclusions. So you know, something that we see in 
venture capital firms uh, or like in the book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things uh, by uh, Ben Horowitz is that in order to come to the best ideas, there needs to be that contentious uh, environment or that uh, contested environment. Synthesis. You got to say have, that again. Thesis, anti-thesis synthesis. You know, you have to have right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, so yeah. So if if it amplifies our ability to do that, then that could be a feature. But yes, it will get dangerous if one AI starts to spout authoritarian um, type uh, rhetoric that inspires people better than any other human ever could or orator could, right? So think of like a, a, a mega Hitler um, that, you know, is okay. way more effective and, and wants to take over the world in that, in that way. And so, you know, that will happen um, and there will need to be uh, guardrails against that happening. Uh, but up to that point in time, using AI to better argue for different points at the points of contention, rather than, you know, my reality needs to be your reality, um, yeah, I think yeah. could be beneficial. Yeah, you're kind of mixing in two concepts here. One is the yeah, like AI and government versus uh, like localism versus federalism versus like, right. you know, like that's yeah, in America a lot, like the, the things that really affect your life usually are like run by the city and the state and the federal government. So I think there is some degree of that, but yeah, I guess more engagement on that level would be better. Or, I mean, you know, we'll end up living in the metaverse and we all have uh, our localized tokens and then you can vote with your token to see how your neighborhood in the metaverse is <laughs> governed. Yeah, it could also work. Totally. I mean, yeah, I mean, having, you know, uh, or, or network state, right? Um, so with that being said, I want to focus on some of the positives here, right? Or potential positives. Um, but how do you think we can prepare the workforce for potential, the potential impact of AI on jobs? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's going to prepare. There's nothing to prepare us. It's going to hit us like a mallet to the face. Um, but I don't know. I think maybe like, yeah, it's just hard. It's hard to tell. I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, like, I think okay, the optimistic vision is always man plus machine is better than man or machine by themselves. So, you know, you got to figure out how you can use these things in your job, how to make the things easier, find ways to be the person who's figured out how to implement all this AI into your work make your life easier and then hopefully the combined skill set of both you and it will be able to do things that neither you or it alone can do separately and then that could maybe apply in various ways and then but like yeah like don't over index your skill sets currently on actual skills like for specific things that you've learned how to do like you know if you're really great at reading quickly and then summarizing find other things that you could be useful in uh, it's ultimately all going to be like yeah solving tough problems it's going to be hard for ais to do by themselves and like thinking about how to use these ais in very um unique 
and clever ways will be the go-to ticket right now and then just yeah just like always never be scared of cannibalizing your own work i guess like see if 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 AI can replace your job be the person replacing your job first because it's going to happen so you might as well be the one in charge or benefiting from it right yeah, I don't know. So, you know, like, I mean, let's just explore, right? We talked about education. There are some fundamental skills that can be taught to alleviate that risk. Um, and, you know, I think actually using the fear setting exercise that was popularized by Tim Ferriss, uh, there's a TED talk on it. If anyone's interested, just type in fear setting Tim Ferriss. Um, and just, you know, putting this into three different columns. The first column being what are the worst case scenarios, right? What are the worst things that can happen? The second column being, uh, what are ways that we can uh, mitigate those risks as much as possible? And the third column being, what are the steps we could take to get back to the status quo if the worst case scenarios were to happen, right? So what is the what, what are the worst case scenarios here? We already explored some of them, right? Uh, there being massive wealth gaps causing massive revolutions all around the world. Um, where you know there's just a bloodbath of uh, rebalancing of power, um, so that's one. Uh, another one is where you know the wealthy get so powerful that they protect themselves with weapons that are just so much more advanced than anything that even you know the entire um, rest of the human population wouldn't stand a chance against. And so there's no way, right? And so they just enslave everybody else that. Um, doesn't have the means to fight for themselves, uh, which is exactly what we see in North Korea, for example. Um, what are some other worst case scenarios here, Bara? I'm sure you've got plenty. I mean, okay, we can start like on the personal and then we can maybe expand, right? Like, I mean, the worst case scenario of short term, super individualistic is you get fired from your job and you can't find another one because you have no skills that are useful. Uh, yeah, nobody's really yeah sorry yeah no I, I think that that one is extremely realistic right um so let's start with that because that's much easier to to tackle and and also much more realistic in the short term right. so what is what are the steps that we could take to mitigate that being a risk right i mean it was 10 years ago, it would have been like, oh, you learn how to code, learn how to get the skills that will be in need in the future. It's just right now, it's not super clear what those will be, uh, per se. The other argument would be that if it is very, like if we've just really kind of removed a lot of the barriers, like you and I can start an app, right? Or you and I can start a company with much less need for, you know, hiring a programmer, hiring a product designer, hiring a somebody to do media for us or like write up copy. So we could like, you know, like if I just have a good idea, you and I about some cool service to exist in the world, we could create that ourselves. We're not gonna get VC funding currently because things exploding, but you know, it's good. It could be something if we can figure out something that's you know we can generate more income than 
uh, it costs us to generate it, then you know, then we suddenly create a viable business in a much easier way, right? Like it's much easier for us to create a business of our own right now. But can everybody do that? Can everybody do this at once? I'm not even saying it like in a like oh can everybody do this? No, but like if by definition everybody's doing that, I don't know. There's something who's buying it. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, there, there there is also yeah. I mean, so the extreme of this example is everybody is an entrepreneur and everybody can start a business and create value because they see problems that they can solve, right? And right. I think that that's ultimately the answer, right? Like you can mitigate the risk of being replaced by getting really good at understanding how to create value for people um, by finding the problems that people are experiencing and finding solutions to those problems, right? And then either building a solution to solve the problems or solving the problems yourself for them. Um, so yeah, definitely learning how to problem solve and implement or execute on that problem solving, which is basically entrepreneurship, um, is one way to mitigate that. Another way would be just understanding through the latest research, right? Because like you said, it's, it's hard to tell what this is going to look like um, even in the near future. Um, but the highest likelihood of success would be having the best understanding of what's most at risk fastest um, and what's least at risk and staying on top of that and training yourself to do the things that are least at risk, right? Um, so retraining was something that was proposed many times. It was implemented many times. It failed many times um, because it's very difficult to uh, teach somebody skills that they uh, are not interested in or they just don't have uh, the knack for or whatever it is. So knowing that reality um, I think it's going to be really important to also understand what makes you tick. Uh, so basically like self-reflection, um, psychology and understanding uh, what are the things that you would enjoy doing on a daily basis um, that uh, you would then hope to find the intersection between that and what's very hard to replace. Um, because you know, telling a bunch of uh, garbage disposal workers or uh, farmers or whatever to switch skill sets entirely and jump into a completely new field that they're not interested in or don't know how to do, even with like the best online education possible, um, is not going to be a, a viable solution. Um, okay, so we've got um, some of the worst case scenarios. We've got some of the ways to mitigate against them. If the worst case scenarios were to happen, what are the steps that we could take to return to the status quo? And is that even a, a possibility in this in this case? Yeah, I don't know. I think ultimately it becomes a question of, of you know, things are the status quo is going to fall apart, and then hopefully we can go right. to a place that's better, like we can create something that's a better system where people like yeah. You know, People on on mass have access to the means of production. They can uh, create things that they need to live a good life, and be able to you know live in relative security of that, without feeling that sort of dread that they have no value and they don't can't really contribute anything of value. 
Um, but yeah, so like if the worst case scenario was to happen, what could you do? Yeah, I mean, in that case, like, yeah, you just have to see what is hiring at that point, right? But then you just get whatever jobs are available in that world that you could do, or you create your own. I also yeah, think it's, yeah, go ahead. No, let me get the point, because I might, I might go a little off topic, but. Very, well, I'm just thinking very... it's kind of, you know, self-balancing is kind of built into this system um, in a unfortunately violent way, but it's just kind of how it is. Um, if like we, we are, a, we are a interdependent system uh, internationally and nationally um, and even like, you know, on a neighborhood level, right? If there's enough people that are not able to um get jobs produce income whatever that leads to more homelessness homelessness as we've seen uh, again and again leads to a lot of mental health issues mental health issues lead to a lot of instability and potential violence which is bad for everybody so it's like you know you have to see that you have a part to play in helping every player get to a point of um equilibrium or some positive some positive place uh, or you're also shooting yourself in the foot, right? Um, so I think like just understanding that this is a massive prisoner's dilemma for everybody. And that just means, yeah. you know, if everybody, everybody cooperates, everybody wins. But if, you know, one person- everybody has a vested interest in creating us like a society that looks out for people, right? Like right. we all benefit from that. This pure idea of me, me, me would not really create a society that's very useful. And I think that's, uh, that's the difference between, you know, like pure laissez-faire capitalism versus socialism of some sort. Obviously there, in every society, there's a combination of both and the US is no different. And yeah, I can see that still happening for sure. And there isn't this idea that we're gonna let people off to go off and die. I don't think it's gonna fly that much. But the problem is like, I think like the difference is that this could affect the difference between this and other you know, times this happens is that I don't think anybody's really safe per se, right? Like even even the wealthy and the rich currently, they could find themselves in a very similar situation where like they have no actual useful skills. I mean, one could argue that they already don't, but like like there is a yeah, like this can affect everybody. And it's not going to really be us versus each other. It's going to be us versus kind of an outside entity, outside of humans. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to generate a few interesting dams you haven't seen before. But yeah, like there's a lot of people right now yelling like we need to regulate AI, and like there's no actual idea of what we can do to regulate it. There's no like like how how would we regulate AI? Like other than just not doing it, which is not really an option. I think it's kind of gonna happen uh but it's gonna be yeah so i don't know so it'll be interesting but definitely uh, like we have to like create systems that look out for everybody uh, so the question the question there right is will the benefits of ai outweigh the negative impact on jobs um can they also be the solution right where the obstacle is the way in a in a sort um because if if it causes all of these problems. I, I like. I don't think that there is a realistic scenario in which we stop technology, right? 
uh, it's happening. So if it's happening and it's going to cause all these problems, but it is also going to cause all the solutions to those problems, that's a that's a viable option. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah, it, it just becomes a question of like what role will humans play, right? Like if we ultimately become like pets, right? For this higher intelligence. It's like I you know I take care of my dog, its life is better off with me around, right? I, I give it a lot of solutions that it wouldn't have on its own. It could be a situation similar to that where it's like, yeah, we're like these kind of dumb apes that kind of birth this technology it's way smarter than us it doesn't really need our help on anything it keeps us around feeds us and we can like go around being like oh you see my old artwork i did and puts it on like a fridge and we're like oh good job humans uh, it, it, so, it could be yeah i mean you know it, it also depends on like yeah it, it also depends on you know what do we define as utopic societies because um if it's if, if there's a world of abundance and by that, I mean, we are not wanting in resources. We are not wanting in yeah. psychological needs. Um, that's, that's, that could be utopic, right? Um, yeah. And yeah, and a dog, yeah, a dog essentially lives that way with a good owner. So um, it's going to come down to what we value more um, and what we or what the masses uh, with power allow to happen more realistically. Um, mm -hmm. And if we can come to some form of consensus about what it means to have a society of abundance, um, then the advent of AI is not a problem, but a yeah, solution I mean, to the problem. Yeah, no, that's true. There's one thing I wanted to kind of hit on which is my favorite topic to talk about, which is the second law of thermodynamics, which is <laughs> like, like I do think that people sometimes get this idea that like, you know, with AI, it's much smarter than us and it kind of solves all the problems. Then, you know, we are in this kind of utopia where we don't have to work, we don't have to do anything. And I think there is a fundamental law of physics what it makes it so that you have to always be working on some level and it's you know the second law of thermodynamics says that open systems uh, well closed systems any closed system will always go towards disorder and then what does that mean is that like you know we get more disordered with time so how does any order exist in the world right what happens is that you're a subsystem that maintains order but it exerts work to maintain that order and by doing so emits a bunch of heat in the surrounding system and the overall becomes more disordered. That entire system overall becomes more disordered. However, there's a subsystem that gets more ordered. And that's how all of life exists, right? Like if you think by the cell, it's more ordered than just being a big mongle of molecules. But to maintain that order in the cell, it emits energy in the surrounding and the overall system gets more disordered. And then that leads to humans like that leads to multicellular organisms, leads to humans, to human society. And that's why all society needs energy, right? Like us burning fossil fuels, us getting this energy from the sun, that's not just like an option. That's not optional. There's no world where we can turn that off. We need to keep exerting energy to maintain our order so that anything with order can exist. And with time, the overall universe has to get more disordered. 
So it almost seems like over time, like if you look at it, like over the evolutionary time period, you started off with something very small and older ordered, like a molecule, became a cell, multicellular, became human. So this subsystem in that, in this world, is gaining, 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 gaining more order and emitting more and more and more and more disorder. So it even feels like a fundamental rule of the universe that's kind of keep pushing it there, like pushing us, this living subsystem, into becoming more and more ordered. So you could think of AI as a kind of next step, right? Like we are gaining this other level of order. But that is going to have to be maintained with energy. Like it's going to always be exerting more and more energy. And it could be the case that, you know, we're not responsible anymore for finding that energy, maintaining that energy. If the AI is smart enough to go explore the universe, try to put a Dyson sphere around the sun, try to really exert all the energy from the sun, then it's, it, it's the AI's problem. But that fundamental relationship between order and energy consumption isn't going to go away. So it might be utopic for us, but it's going to, the AI is going to keep working to find that sweet, sweet oil. Like that oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but, but that energy gonna have production, to, yeah. Yeah, it's going to find some energy sources. It has to always be finding those energy sources to maintain its order. And it's going to get more and more ordered. It's going to get more and more energy. So that fundamental relationship of somebody has to work is not going to go away because it's kind of built into the physics of the world. That somebody might not be humans, but that, that relationship has to still exist. I just want to throw that out there. I don't know why. No, that, that's, that's an important point, right? Um, and it's to understand that if we live in this world of abundance, where's the limit, right? And it goes back to this question, what's enough? When will we ever be satisfied? Because like you said, and, and this brings us to the Kardashev scale, which is, you know, are we going to be a type one civilization, which is, you know, harnessing the power of our planets or type two, which is harnessing the power of our sun or type three, which is harnessing the power of our galaxy uh, as a type four, you know, harnessing the power of the next galaxy over type five, right? It just goes on and on. Um, and so I think fundamentally the thing balancing that out is our psychology, right? It's how do we find equilibrium with having enough? Uh, because if everybody has access to everything, and, you know, there are already existing neural pathways we're very aware of that show people will um, act in ways that, you know, uh, are detrimental to them through addiction, for example, um, knowing that it's detrimental to them because it's addicting, right? So gambling, uh, drugs, whatever, um, we could see that extrapolated to uh, consumerism. I mean, we, like shopping, it's already a thing, right? Um, right. People can be addicted to that. So if it requires, mm -hmm. yeah. No, I'll just yeah. say if it. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just trying to figure out. Okay, so like you're saying, okay, on some level, I think that fundamentally we can never be contented, right? Like as soon as you get contented, you stop evolving, and then the whole thing kind of falls apart. And the the pleasure that most people feel is very much tied with novelty, novelty, right? Like you've reached this stage in life you were here something good happened got you here that it's that transition that makes you feel good because as soon as you're in this new state suddenly you're used to that state and you just don't care anymore and you need to kind of go up again and get that other burst of happiness because it's really in the transition sometimes you know you're in the state something terrible happens and you feel bad 
and then you go back there so suddenly you feel good again so like it's yeah there's this kind of the static contentment is never really available to us in very for a very long time and I don't think that anybody can have enough or be happy or be contented because you happy you can be happy when you're dead because that's like there's no like happiness on earth I mean what you're kind of maybe suggesting is that there are some pathways that you can maybe feel pure euphoria where you know maybe some drugs some meditation some things get you to that state of feeling in an extreme state of bliss and happiness and that's true that exists but, I mean and you can get there through chemically or let's say we figure out exactly what neural pathways do that and we can put ourselves into that mind state and stay there forever I don't know could that I mean that could be an option totally so I think like you know um Good thing bad thing I don't know so Yuval Noah Harari talks about this in Homo Deus, uh, which is the second book that he wrote after Sapiens. And it's basically about, you know, the next 200 years of human history and what those are going to look like. And if I'm remembering correctly, the first thing he thinks we're going to be focusing on the most is controlling our mental states completely um, through drugs. Um, and it could be through other, you know, more natural methods, but primarily through drugs. So if you could, yeah, like you said, um, get the benefits of, you know, 70 years of Buddhist meditation or whatever it is to feel completely tranquil, satisfied equilibrium. And I say Buddhist because their ideology is that life is suffering. Um, and therefore, you know, you can find um, contentment or satisfaction by a lack of desire. So not wanting anything more, right? And, and that's exactly what we're talking about when it comes to the opposite being not knowing when to stop wanting um, or continuously wanting something forever. So on the psychology side, I think, you know, having whatever that effect is, if it even can be fabricated, I don't know that it can be, uh, but just to illustrate the point a little bit, right? Like, uh, learning to appreciate the little things that we take for granted, um, gratitude, right? Practice. Those are all things that help us feel like we have enough because really what, what is um, the opposite of wanting something is to be grateful for everything that you have and therefore not needing anything else. Um, so, you know, if that could be neurochemically fabricated in a way to give people that sensation in mass and they don't want anything more and that's ethical, then sure, you know, like that's a solution. Um, now, if that's not possible to do, um, then we'll need to find ways to make that uh, a more predominant um, practice or habit for people. Maybe it's something that's taught in school, maybe it's something that whatever, right? Now, even if that's the case, though, I don't think that it's going to stop the people who will not be satisfied, don't want to be satisfied from going after more. And so then you extrapolate out this um, Kardashev scale. And it's like, okay, well, if we are um, a species that, um, if we could see colonizing, the galaxy as a natural part of human evolution, then we're just doing what we're supposed to be doing, right? Like we're basically doing the same thing we did on earth, but now at a bigger scale, you know, on a multi-planetary scale. So it's like, why is that wrong? Um, 
I don't know, right? <laughs> like if there are infinite, um, well, there aren't infinite, but if there are like so many galaxies that it would be, you know, really difficult to imagine a world in which um, that's not enough to supply um, people with the energy that they need or the AIs with the energy that they need to do what we want, um, then it becomes a philosophical question as to, you know, like what should, our, should a species try to um, take advantage of as many resources to ensure its, you know, survival as much as possible? Or should it, you know, find a point of equilibrium where it can, you know, find a way to be sustainable with the ways that things already are? So I don't think yeah. I think yeah, like it's kind of purely in the it is within our nature not to be contented, and I think there's kind of evolutionary pressure not to be contented, right? Because if you are right. contented, you stop. Somebody else is not contented, and they keep going. They become maybe gain more power than you, are able to erase you. Therefore, their 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 thought processes survive more than yours. We are contented. So it could be a very beneficial for you on an individual level to just find this kind of contentment, live your life happily, and then move on. But from a kind of on mass level, I feel like those kind of traits have a hard time surviving, and therefore they're and spreading. So I do think we are kind of doomed to, if not us, things maybe we generate or this process that started uh, to kind of keep keep going and there's no kind of static equilibrium that we find it's always going to be these exponential growths plateaus growth plateaus growth, growth. and we're kind of right now in that nice upswing so yeah. let's <laughs> well that i think that's a good place to conclude right so let's um wrap it all together um what do we think as a, as closing thoughts for anybody listening who's concerned about AI replacing jobs, um, for what that means for them and what that means for our society as a whole. Well, I mean, I think they should at least be mentally prepared that the world of tomorrow is not going to look anything like the world of yesterday. So don't be surprised when it happens. Um, Think you got to prepare yourself by you know thinking about what kind of world you want that to be um be man plus machine better than man or machine remember that so learn how to use these tools don't be scared of them try to be the first one out of the gate using them and you know ultimately what this is going to come down to is becoming more and more powerful these are tools that make us more powerful and if we use those tools in good ways we can create heavens on earth we can create these jewels in bad ways we can create hells on earth so it's really just um more and more power and we the way we use that power is going to determine how we the world kind of world we create with that that tool and hopefully if you are feeling that i mean yeah like hopefully it won't be a situation where these machines or this artificial intelligence will be something that's separate than us because if it's separate than us then you know you can say that like you know its interests and our interests might diverge whereas if it's completely embedded within us and kind of we are using it from the beginning and it's improving all aspects of our lives then our interests and its interests will stay converged 
and we can you know grow together uh, in the next evolutionary step but we'll have to see i couldn't think of a better way to conclude all that Bara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. And uh, I think these are all super, super important and relevant ideas for everyone to be thinking about, uh, not only for your personal life, but also for societies and civilizations at large uh, and our interdependence in the world. So thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one. Mm -hmm.